Hello, welcome to Confidence Conversation Talk Show with Michael Adetu. Uh, I'm your host today, and that will be Austin Dr. Alex, who is a, a medical consultant for NHS. And together, we'll be discussing the use of hydroxychloroquine for treating COVID 19. Dr. Alex, thank you for coming to the show today. Thank you for having me today. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be here t- tonight. Thank you. Yeah. How has your day been, anyways? Well, yeah, uh, busy as usual, but um, everything is going okay. Thank you. Okay, so we we'll just quickly move on strictly into the into the conversation. Let me quickly ask you: um, What exactly is hydroxychloroquine, and how does this medication work? Yeah, thank you for that question, Michael. Um, hydroxychloroquine is a medication that is classed as one of the anti-malarials. It's been with us for quite a long time. I think he first came into the medical scene in the 40s, 1940s. And since then, it's been a steadfast and very reliable medication in the treatment of malaria. And as we know, malaria is more of of a sub-Saharan African um, problem, you know, um, caused by um, um, the plasmodium that, you know, gets hosted by the mosquitoes that we usually find in different parts of Africa and some other parts of the world. Now, aside from the treatment of malaria using chloroquine, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine has also got other uses. It's also classified as one of the disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs used in the treatment of some autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, or systemic lupus erythematosus, mm-hmm. um, you know. So the main the main effect of hydroxychloroquine on the system is to modulate the immune system in such a way that inflammatory changes that you know occur in these conditions improve uh, mainly improves pain and joint swellings and other skin um, swellings as well. But specifically in the treatment of malaria. Um, it is found to modulate the immune system in such a way that it creates an unfavorable environment for the plasmodium to, you know, to continue to replicate itself, where, whereby, you know, it can truncate the, the disease progression or activity. So that is, you know, the basic use of hydroxychloroquine is using these two classes of um, illnesses. Okay. Would you say there is a, would you say there is a, there is a cure for COVID-19 at the moment. Is there a cure? You mean in terms of um, hydroxychloroquine or general question? I mean, just general question. Right. So, um, currently, as we know, COVID-19 came into the picture towards the end of last year um, in China. Then over the next few months, it kind of became a worldwide um, problem. Um, Currently, there is no known cure for COVID-19, but it suffices to say that COVID-19 does not manifest itself in the same way in every patient or in every subject. Some people have um, what we call asymptomatic condition, in which case they don't have any symptoms at all. So they go about their business feeling normal without any, you know, any changes to, you know, to make them worry that they might have the disease. While some people have, you know, what ranges from mild to severe symptoms. Now, um, I think it's important to mention that those who are hospitalized 
you know, in the hospital are the ones who are presenting with the severe forms of the of the condition. And we know that COVID-19 has a special predilection for the um, respiratory tract. It affects the lungs and the airway and uh, it makes people, you know, it makes people's breathing difficult ultimately. And that is why it can be quite dangerous and that is why people die. Now, in terms of treatment, uh, we know and I've said before already that we don't have a definitive cure. But what we do do or what we do have are ways of uh, ameliorating these conditions, you know, in terms of the severe ones where people need treatment. Yeah. And the treatments that we offer range from, you know, just supportive care, like just trying to break the cycle of the temperature or where people are vomiting or where people have, um, you know, some more severe forms or maybe shortness of breath, yeah. you know, different things are done yeah. as far as, you know, admitting people to critical care, you know, controlling the airway artificially in some cases, you know, so these are the things we do. And um, aside from those things, there are a few medications that have been thrown around, you know, just to help you know, in terms of um, improving the experiences of people with COVID-19. Yeah. But nothing nothing definitively has been discovered yet to be a known cure for the disease. Okay, I'm sure you would have uh, probably seen the video of Dr. Stella Emanuel making an ad on social media where she claimed that hydroxychloroquine is the silver bullet and the definite cure for... Uh, coronavirus and there's no reason why people should be dying what can you make of this video well i mean um, the video made the rounds you know it was all over the place and it's been very interesting you know reading different comments about the video so um in my experience as an nhs consultant and and someone who has actively looked after patients with covid19 um, I think I would rather go you know, in a different direction when it comes to my submission on hydroxychloroquine as a medication. Um, I kind of want to say, you know, that I respect, you know, our opinion and what she has claimed to do, you know, in terms of using hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of patients with malaria. But in our center, um, we've run a few different trials. And one of the trials that, you know, was conducted across some centers in the UK um, at the initial stage was to trial hydroxychloroquine to see whether it has any significant effect on patients. Yeah. And now during this trial, which we ran for up to six weeks, and we had patients with severe forms of COVID-19 manifestations. Um, we use this medication, you know, based on the recommendation for it, uh, which I'm not going to go into right now, but we did use hydroxychloroquine to see whether it can deliver the, um, the results that we all craved and wanted. But um, at the end of the trials, we discovered a few profound findings. And these were that one, um, hydroxychloroquine has not shown or proven to improve symptoms as it were. However, having said that, um, in terms of pain, in terms of inflammatory changes, um, it has a very little effect in improving that. But in terms of the number of days of admission, in terms of the mortality outcome, which means whether people die or leave following treatment, Yes. We, haven't found, we haven't found any significant effect of hydroxychloroquine yes. in those regards. 
So obviously the, 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 the submission from that trial is that hydroxychloroquine has been found to not be useful and so we discarded it and you know so many centers across the UK and Europe also carried out their trials and that is why if you if you recall now um, recently you know no one is talking about the use of hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of um, COVID-19 in most of these centers even some centers back in Africa and in Nigeria you know, also reported, and I think recently NDPC made a statement as well to say that they haven't found any use for it. So it is not being used to treat um, COVID-19. So I think this this is probably a very popular and general view amongst um, clinical practitioners. Wow. Let me just, Dr. Wallace, let me put this straight to you. Yes. Is, is COVID-19 a biological weapon? Well, um, that's a very interesting one, um, and I'm going to answer it in a, in a slightly different way. Um, I'm going to say, you know, first of all, uh, that um, COVID-19 is probably, probably, and uh, please underline that word, probably a biological weapon, but my answer will probably be that it's um, a biological war. It's a biological warfare, because one is a pandemic that is decimating the the lives of people, you know, it's caused a lot of disruptions to human activities. It's led to, you know, so many mortalities across the world. So in terms of it being a war, that's why it was declared a pandemic. It's something we are up against as a human race. is a huge threat to our existence as, as a people, as, as, as men in this world. So, you know, in, from that point of view, it's a biological warfare. But, you know, whether it's a weapon or not, I think... This is probably something we cannot prove. We can't prove it yet. Maybe let's say yet, because maybe in a few years down the line there might be more revelations about how how COVID nineteen came about. But for now, I think it suffices to say it's a biological warfare and probably a biological weapon, but we cannot prove that yet. Okay, so let's just move on to invested interest. Yes. Uh, would you say there are any vested interests with the way the world has handled the uh, coronavirus outbreak? Um, yeah, um, I think, you know, with everything that, you know, catches human attention, and this is not a disease that is limited to a particular location or a particular country. It's something that, you know, is ravaging the entire world. So, you know, naturally by human response, you know, you tend to want to believe that, you know, obviously there is vested interest, you know, in terms of the political or, or government interest, in terms of pharmaceutical and other stakeholders as well. So, you know, vested interest shows, you know, um, it shows or it, re- it reflects that, you know, people will want to see how these can profit them, what they can gain or get out of, you know, these old crises. You know, from that perspective or point of view, I don't think it's uh, it, it is wrong to say that obviously there are vested interests in COVID-19. And um, another thing I want to use to portray that is you know, when you talk about medications, you know, choices of medications, different people have come out to say, you know, this thing works. For instance, you know, like we mentioned before, some people are, you know, fronting hydroxychloroquine as a silver bullet. You know, we've heard about them. Uh, dexamethasone, we've heard about some other things, some other medications that 
have been tried across the world. So these agendas are pushed forward to help the pharmaceutical companies developing them to gain relevance and to gain advantage in the market. So, you know, if you consider that, and it's a natural thing, it's, it's, it's a natural way of response, you know, um, we, we cannot discount the, uh, the fact that, you know, there, there are vested interests in this situation. So many people that are, so many professionals or institutions that criticize Dr. Stella Emanuel regarding her claim. Uh, yeah. Stella, she did mention in the video that she had personally treated over 350 people and they are yeah. to present this evidence. If she comes out, and she hasn't done that yet, anyways. So if she comes out tomorrow and present this evidence that COVID-19, hydroxychloroquine uh, uh, can actually be used as a treatment for COVID-19, what would you say then? Well, I mean, I can't, I don't think anyone should, you know, go out and start faulting our assertion or our claims. What we then need to do is to look at the evidence that she brings forward and critically appraise those evidences and also, you know, compare our evidence or our outcomes with what has been done in other places. Science is not about argument, you know, it's not about I did this, no, you didn't do it, I did that, no, you didn't, no, that's not the way science works. Science works by hard facts, you know, you need to present hard evidence, you know, this is what I've done, okay? You can't just come out and say this is what you've done, you, you have to also show how you came about your results and, you know, how long did you treat these patients you are claiming you treated for? Did you use just hydroxychloroquine or you used it in, you know, in um, tandem with some other medications? And how did you come about your results? So those kind of questions need to be asked, you know, and then, you know, we have to review and appraise our, our, our results or what she's claiming that she has um, achieved. Because there have been similar trials or I won't say similar because I don't, I'm not even sure whether there was a trial in, in our own case or not. But there are definitely trials, you know, where hydroxychloroquine has been used in patients. And we have answers, we have had evidence to prove that it's not been, uh, it's not been uh, the kind of medication that we thought it was, you know, especially from the point of view of COVID-19. So it's all about presenting the evidences and then we can critically appraise the evidence and see whether it works. In any case, you know, hydroxychloroquine is not such a difficult medication to get. I know that people might have tried it on their own and people might even say, well, it worked for me. But I think what we need to understand here is the fact that, you know, some people, not even some, majority of people who have had COVID-19 are likely to make recovery, total recovery from the disease without using anything at all. So in those people, when they use hydroxychloroquine and they, you know, they kind of, you know, think it's what is making them better. But whereas, whether they use it or not, they would have improved anyways. So, you know, so those kind of, you know, situations are commonplace and people tend to misplace, you know, their outcomes or their experiences, you know using the medication that they've used. That's why some people say if you use vitamin C or if you use garlic and, you know, um, you know all these local herbal kind of preparations, they work because people try them, but they were going to get better anyways without using those things. So, you know, if she comes out and says, these are my evidences, then we have to appraise the evidences and, and compare it with the other studies that people have carried out with hydroxychloroquine that we have um, 
who have an interesting point or for conversation or discussion then yeah i mean i'm just going to digress a bit on, on okay. the ne- news it been reported i think that was yesterday or two days ago the youngest um victim that died of covid-19 they said old boy i don't know if you you you've, you've seen that in the us yeah oh, yeah now what the, what the what, what the medical professionals has been saying is people who are easily um will easily move from the stage to the to be to the severe stage of covid-19 impact are people with probably underlying medical condition in the case yeah. in the case of this boy i'm not too sure if he's, if he had any underlying medical condition so my question mm. then is what 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 really determined the survivor of anyone who eventually contracted um, covid-19 is it uh, is the immune system being fight the virus based on how strong the immune system of the victim is thank you for that very 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 good question um, i'm going to answer that question um you know in in different ways you know i'm going to come up with you know factors that can lead to um recovery i think that's probably the best way to answer the question okay. now when someone contracts a disease you know um the default the default you know outcome is that the person will make recovery all right yeah. is that that person will recover from the disease yes. and this is what we see up to 90 plus percent of people who contract the disease yes. now the other factors that can then sway you know the outcome negatively yes are you getting my point yeah i'm getting so the factors that can sway the outcome negatively are one the immune system status now this is the most important and most vital you know determinant of recovery and this is scientific now yes now if your immune system is strong all right yes in your system because your system is healthy your body begins to learn the virus begins to understand the activities of the virus and so the body begins to build up resistance against the virus getting into those areas that can lead to the virus causing devastating outcomes okay so people with underlying medical conditions mainly you know conditions that can dampen the immune system or make the immune system blunt or impotent to fight back or to mount a response are those who are more likely to die from the disease and these conditions like you know diabetes like cancer like um, chronic diseases chronic kidney disease chronic obstructive lung disease asthma and some other immune immune defining or immune modulating immune deficiency syndromes and immune defining syndromes like all those like in children like you mentioned a child who died it is very probable that this child had some underlying conditions could even be something like a mitochondrial disease you know which sometimes it takes a while before the effect or before the effect is seen in that child so the child might might have come out looking healthy up until the time that the child contracted the disease but because the immune system wasn't strong enough could be the reason why the child succumbed to the disease and this is the same that's why you see that the majority of people who die from covid-19 
are people in the elderly category and most of the time more often than not they are the ones who have you know numerous medical conditions heart disease lung disease kidney disease liver disease you know degenerative diseases and all these things so it makes people more susceptible to dying from covid when they get it however younger fitter people with strong immune systems often find a way of you know overcoming and overpowering the disease ultimately yeah. and even though they might you know come down with some symptoms they often recover and make full recovery so that is the first thing a first determinant of outcome now another important thing is the viral strain and if you see you know the way this virus behaves when it starts to spread around the world okay you yeah. notice in some parts of the world you know people tend to come down more and die in droves compared to some other part of the world yeah and i think what can explain this in part is that you know the virus often changes shape or changes morphology and becomes more virulent in some parts of the world and in places where they are fortunate enough to have the virulent strains they are likely to have more severe forms of and they are more likely to die from it hmm. All right. yes i think the final point i just want to mention about it is ignorance All right, yes. ignorance is another key factor. A lot of people don't even believe the disease exists. I was watching some American documentaries where people were actually, you know, um taking the government of the of their states to court, you know, to fight against wearing masks in public because it, they didn't think it was something they should do because they had some religious beliefs that suggested that, you know, they shouldn't be subject to wearing masks. I don't know where this came about. you know but these are some of the problems we have and in, in some places you hear things about like covid parties they having covid parties because they never believe that you know the disease exists in some places you see people you know doing they, they do some what do they call these things that they do you know stunts they do stunts you know some people leak toilet seats they you know do all sorts of things just to prove to the world that this thing doesn't exist And when you see in in places or in individuals or communities where those things happen they tend to have you know more terrible and gruesome outcomes because if you don't believe that something exists in the first place you are more likely to not you know take any precaution to prevent it from you know from attacking you or from making you unwell so you know these are the factors you know that i think are responsible for the outcomes when people get this disease Okay I'm just uh let me ask you how from cisco complaints benefiting from this what i mean by this question is there's a there's a theory out there that some big player in the in the farm space usually come up with looking at the nature of the virus usually come up with um with something of that nature in order to generate the vaccine or come up with the uh, cure so that they can make money In this case do you think the pharmaceutical complain are benefiting from the virus from this angle or could it be that the cure for the coronavirus is being delayed because the big farm want to be the one to come out with the cure 
To be honest, I think I would rather answer the question from your first point, which is whether the benefits was, you know, um, if, if they gain from this. I think the second part of the question is a bit more difficult to, to, to answer because, you know, you have to be private to what, what goes on in the pharmaceutical world for you to know whether they are delaying it or not. But personally, on a compassionate, you know, from a compassionate point of view, I wouldn't want to subscribe to that, to you know, to that theory that, you know, um, they are sitting on the on the answer to to COVID just because of um, profits. Because either way, they are going to make a lot of profit, and that takes me back to the first part of your question. And I'm going to answer it emphatically by saying, absolutely, the pharmaceuticals are going to benefit immensely from COVID-19. Now, if you look at the trend, you know, since COVID-19 first came into the scene and what has happened, if you are following pharmaceuticals, you'll see that, you know, they've brandished different medications at different times. And these medications they are brandishing are produced or manufactured by different companies. But if you look at the name behind these companies, you see that they are usually the big pharma pharmaceuticals. For instance, in the UK, Roche is the one, you know, you know, um, championing the vaccine, you know, thing now. And the government already, they've subscribed to over three of, I don't know the specific number, but millions, they've already subscribed to millions of the vaccines, you know, which is going to be out very soon, you know. So you can see how things work because these big pharmaceuticals, they are the government vaccine, they are the big players in the pharmaceutical markets, and they have more end product marketability compared to the smaller ones. So they have brands, they have sales, they are, they are very, very well known and vast across the world. So these ones are the ones that the governments are likely to trust more to deliver the results, to deliver the goods. And already, you know, so many of them are into vaccines. Even if smaller companies, you know, have what looks more reliable than the big ones, the small ones will not be able to push the agenda through to the market, except they go on the platform of the big pharmaceuticals. And this is how business works. There is an aspect of, you know, of producing or providing solution. And there's the other aspect of the market, marketability. We are talking about business, you know, in that aspect. So the business aspect always overrides the, the, the you know the the other the other aspect of what the pharmaceuticals do. So at the end of the day, you know, even if the smaller ones are the ones that are gaining the initiative in producing a lasting solution to COVID, they are more likely to merge or go on the platform of the bigger ones to push through, you know, what product they have. So at the end of the day, whichever way we want to look at it. This is a big, big, big day for the pharmaceutical companies, especially the big farmers. Okay, before I let you go, do you have any other thing you want to say to the audience? I just want to let the audience know that, you know, that they need, no, at this stage, you know, at this stage of, um, of COVID-19, you know, we've gone about six, seven, eight months into it. Um, there is still a huge uncertainty as to whether there's going to be a second wave or maybe there won't be a second wave. But from the clinical point of view, things are looking very promising in terms of everything settling down. You know, back in April, May, or even March, you know, 
we had a huge amount of mortality across the NHS. And I'm sure it was the same, you know, in most of the European countries like Spain, Italy, France, Germany, you know, people died a lot. But these days, if I would, there are times when we can go three, four, five days without recording immortality. So things are improving. So because we are look, it's looking like we are winning the war. It's important that people then strategize correctly. What do I mean by this? I mean that this is the time for people to now observe the rules properly. You know, one meter rule, two meter rule, wherever applicable. But more importantly, you know, we should not shun the the need or the necessity of going out wearing masks in public places, especially in closed you know, closed environments and all that. It's not going to take much out of us to do that for our own safety, for our own safety. That's all I'm going to say. Let's keep looking up. Let's keep, you know, believing and trusting that very soon there will be um, a lasting solution. And I can see a solution on the horizon as well. So let's be hopeful. That's all I've got to say. Well, I hope you continue to stay safe as you walk on the front line. Thank you very much, my brother. Mm. Thank you so much, Dr. Alex Adilakon, consultant in AKIT and General Medicine Initiatives. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Mm.